The Water Cooler is a live storytelling event performed monthly at Bats Theatre in Wellington. This month's theme was Jet Planes. A small reminder that the stories were recorded live, so the language and themes may not be for everyone. Our storyteller, Rachel Rouge, is no stranger to this stage. Rachel has been performing cabaret and burlesque all over the world and New Zealand and is also the founder and producer of monthly variety show The Menagerie. When you consider how far and wide Rachel has travelled, it makes Kentucky Tours sound like an airport shuttle company. This is Rachel's story. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Rachel Rouge? In 2006 and 2007, I worked as a volunteer English teacher in Khartoum University in North Sudan. I loved Sudan. The reason I loved it was the people. The people in Sudan are the most generous, open-hearted, kindest, welcoming people that I've ever met in one country. And as an obvious foreigner, blatantly and visually foreign, with freckled skin and my large, giant blue eyes, I was clearly to them a guest. So it wouldn't take much. People would just see me and invite me to their house to share a meal, for a cup of tea, to meet their family, to hang out. My entire experience of Sudan was just this cushion of kindness and generosity. It was amazing. This one Friday, um, one of the other volunteers, Liam and I, decided to go to check out the Nubian Wrestling. Nubian Wrestling was a bit of an event um, on a Friday evening in Khartoum. It involved wrestlers from South Sudan. South Sudan is very different to North Sudan in culture and language and religion, and now it's a totally different country. Um, These men would wrestle in the dirt topless, which is pretty amazing in such a conservative Muslim nation to have these topless men in a public spectacle. On this day, I was wearing my standard backpacker uniform of Kathmandu cargo pants, a dress that hid my hips and bum, a long sleeve shirt, and I would cover my head as well with a headscarf. It sounds pretty conservative, but it was actually breaking the law. Women wearing trousers can be charged for indecency and whipped. In fact, women can receive a penalty of 40 lashes for wearing trousers. This happens a lot. It happened just last July. In theory, I was subject to the same law, but in reality, no one bothered me with what I wore. When we got to the wrestling stadium, now I I say stadium, but don't think of a building. It's more like a circus tent without a top. It was made of canvas sheets that were attached to metal framing about two metres high, and each frame was about three metres wide, creating a circle about 30 metres in diameter. Uh, This was sitting on a a large piece of empty, flat dirt ground just outside of Khartoum City. Uh, We found the opening, we brought our tickets, and we entered. I was the only female inside this wrestling stadium. This was normal for me, Uh, and normal for my experience travelling in Africa and the Middle East. I mostly travelled alone. As a single female traveller, I would be treated as an honorary man in many situations because I was visually and blatantly foreign. I got a free pass because they could see I was a Western woman and they could see I came from a different world. It's strange. I got to go where both local men and local women couldn't. Inside the stadium, there was a circle of dirt in the middle and there was a ring of people sitting down on the ground. Then behind that ring was another ring of people either kneeling or squatting comfortably. Then behind that ring, there was about two more rows of people sitting in chairs that they had brought along themselves. Then behind that, there was another couple of rows of people standing. The stadium was full, and the wrestling had begun. There were about 300 people there. Of course, as soon as Liam and I entered, we were greeted warmly and we were welcomed as guests. We were given a beautiful spot right near the cartoon wrestling team, the local team, and they'd just won four out of five matches as well. So the atmosphere was wonderful on our side of the stadium. Everyone around us was joyous. In the Western world, we seem to focus a lot on what Muslim women wear, but Everyone in these conservative Muslim countries dresses modestly. 
Um, and it's amazing how you can acclimatise to this. Um, just a couple of weeks before I went to the wrestling match, I saw one of my colleagues reaching for something on a high shelf, and as he did, his shirt crept up, revealing that really lovely bit of hip, that indent where the belly meets the leg, and that was really exciting. <laughs> and I realised that getting to see that 10 centimetres of flesh for just a few seconds, I had definitely been in the Muslim world too long, and I was turning into a total perv. In the wrestling ring, I was right next to topless men wearing shorts. These were the South Sudanese wrestlers. They were, their very exposed flesh was so toned and rippled and taunt and covered with beading sweat and the dry dust of the wrestling ring. And I was definitely checking them out. And I was trying not to act like a pervy Western woman which was a stereotype in Sudan. Um, the wrestling was incredible. I, I don't understand the rules. But I don't understand the rules of most sports. Um, two men went into the uh, centre of the circle, topless, wearing shorts. <laughs> and then they would throw dirt into each other's eyes. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure why. There was a bit of touching. There was a bit of slapping. And I'm not too sure if they were trying to push each other out of the ring or pin each other down to the ground, but, but they were topless. <laughs> something happened on the other side of the circle. A referee must have made a call or something, but it disgruntled the people on the other team, and a few of those people stood up and came into the wrestling ring. There was an altercation. Uh, there was some shouting, a, a bit of shoving, and things escalated quite fast. Three police officers came into the ring with batons. They started beating one of the spectators, an elderly man who had entered the ring. Clearly, they did not know that if there's three of them, maybe they shouldn't beat up one old dude in front of about 300 men who were racked up at a wrestling match. So more people stood up. And they joined in the kerfuffle. On our side, we stood up too to see the action happening and see what was going on. I'm a short woman. And so once everyone else stood up around me, there was only a few things I could see above their heads and shoulders. I could see more and more people entering the ring. I could see the white woven hats on top of the men's heads. I could see them holding up their canes. I could see a few of the canes being swiftly moved up and down. I could also see people entering holding chairs above their heads as well. My side of the wrestling ring was pretty calm. We're all just watching. Then I could see the top of a police riot van entering the circle. And suddenly, bang, bang, bang! There was a, three loud shots. Then the people around me started crying, bomban, bomban! It was like being caught up in a herd of gazelle where suddenly everyone changed direction at the same time. Later, I learned that the word bomban means tear gas. Everyone pushed out from the centre of the ring where the tear, gas, the tear gas canisters had been deployed. This was my first experience of tear gas. Since then, I've spent a few months in the occupied West Bank in Palestine. And the Friday, um, at the Friday non-violent protest, there's always tear gas. So I've learned a lot since then. Like, in tear gas, you always run into the wind. Um, it's a... <clears throat> sorry. And it's a good way to um, clear out the tear gas is by carrying an onion. Um, once the tear gas starts coming, you break open the onion and <clears throat> sniff it. And the uh, juice from the onion, it's like the lesser of two evils. It can neutralise the effect. And now I know how to rewrap my headscarf to cover my face. And in Palestine, the protesters would run up to the tear gas canisters, put them into their slingshots and just fire them straight back. But this wasn't Palestine. This wasn't a protest. No one had slingshots. And I had no idea what was going on. 
My friend Liam was a few metres away from me. He got pushed up against the two-metre canvas wall with a surge of the crowd piling up against him. The canvas finally gave way under the force of the people trying to flee. The whole wrestling stadium peeled outwards so the crowds could stumble out and dissipate. I too got pushed over in the rush to, to escape. I landed with my face down in the dirt. Now, I may have mentioned... Sudanese people are the most thoughtful, polite, welcoming, considerate and generous people I have ever encountered. One man arched over me to protect me from the oncoming crowd and grabbed him by the hand, pulling me to my feet, being incredibly careful not to touch me anywhere but my hand. Then he kind of half apologised for touching me without permission. We left the now collapsing wrestling stadium, oh, now completely collapsed wrestling stadium. In only a few minutes, it had become a pile of fallen canvas, chairs and poles and was covered with a swarm of people surging outwards. Everyone was just going for self-preservation and they scattered in all directions. I was in a civilised, polite jog, just trying to catch up with Liam and that's when the mist of the tear gas then started to take me. First, I saw it. Then I felt it. It was like being suffocated. It felt so incredibly toxic, like I was being poisoned by my own breath. Just breathing in and out was hurting me. My face began to sting. My eyes swelled up, and I stopped being able to see clearly. And I couldn't run. I couldn't walk fast enough away from this horrible infection. So we just walked. We just kept on walking. We had to. We probably would have walked only 100 or 150 metres, but it felt like a huge uphill trek. It was so difficult. We started walking past the residential homes in the area. Some of the families had come out to watch the people running from the tear gas, laughing as they staggered past the first ones we came across, as soon as they saw us, of course they invited us in to sit down, have a cup of tea and recover. We stayed there for about an hour, just waiting to be able to breathe again. Liam could speak Arabic quite well. I only knew a few words. The family were lovely. The mother of the house greatly admired my trousers, the grubby, dirt-covered cargo pants. She, um, she kept touching them. Jamil, Jamil. It means beautiful. Uh, they plied us with cookies, tea. We smoked apple shisha and we laughed because some things you just don't need language for. They warned us not to touch our faces or to put water on our skin. We just had to leave it, let it sting, let it itch, let the tear gas slowly leave us naturally. But it was really hard not to rub my eyes. It hurt. For my first experience, I thought the tear gas was wonderful. It was horrific to be caught up in it, and my experience of this tear gas was incredibly privileged. I was not that guy being beaten up by three police officers. I was not on the side of the stadium where the altercation happened, and I was given a very privileged, clear way out where no one pushed me, no one trampled over me, and in everyone's quest for self-preservation, they put their responsibilities as a host to a foreigner above their desire to just run and get away from the gas. I saw firsthand how good tear gas was and how that was about... Um, that whole event was about 300 people in a small enclosure. That fight was violent, and it would have resulted in casualties, possibly fatalities. By deploying the gas, we had no choice but to flee. There was no chance of a riot after that, and no one was killed. If that tear gas hadn't been deployed, that might not have been the case. A couple of weeks later, I returned to the family, I brought them some cakes, and I also gave the mum my clean, laundered pair of trousers that she could keep and wear in the privacy of her own home. Give it up for Rachel. 
Our storyteller, Thomas Smith, is a theatrical youth performance engineer, otherwise known as Alice's Hutt Valley High School drama teacher. The tables are turned on Tamara in this month's issue of The Water Cooler when the teacher becomes the student and the student becomes the host and producer of the show. Tamara takes us for a walk in his shoes with a story of extremely unlucky luck. This is Tamara's story. Can I get you all, please, to put your hands together for Thomas Smith? So, yeah, as I mentioned uh, to Alice, I have told the story a few times. Um, it takes me back to 2006 as well. So there's a nice parallel there. Um, you're in Sudan. I was, um, I was getting really excited over the whole year. I was gearing up for this trip, and I'd just met my wife, my, my wife-to-be then, uh, two years earlier, and we decided we are going to do that classic um, prove our relationship before we got married by travelling. Has anyone else played that game before? <laughs> You know, the standard. So, so we spent, you know, I spent the year saving and I was fairly proud of myself because I was quite steady about it and everything was organised. We, we, we made our lists of things we had to get done. We got our shots done. We, we packed our bags a month early. We were just, it was all going perfectly and I, um, perfectly well and I was really proud of myself. And we were aiming to travel in December the, yeah, December the 20th. Um, so the year would be finished and we'd sort of head off and have a lovely exotic um, Christmas in South America, we decided, we would be the place that we'd, we'd um, test ourselves, so test our relationship. So there we were, um, putting this money aside, getting all excited, and everything was going perfectly right up to the day of leaving. I put my, my, put my teaching job aside, and we headed to the airport here in Wellington, and um, spent, you know, that lovely time, that lovely time just before you leave on a plane where you're just sort of wandering around, absolutely carefree, kind of just buying little trinkets because you kind of can and dangle them around your neck. And I actually bought this lovely little, I decided this little um, little thing here would be my travel token. And I did all this, <laughs> and we discussed it. And there it was, and, and, we, and, and my wife, my fiancé at the time, put it on my, on my neck, and it was all that, one of those lovely moments. We flew off to Auckland, and I swear there was sort of music playing. It was so beautiful. <laughs> arrived, in, arrived in Auckland, got off the plane, everything was scheduled, so we had approximately, oh, I think it was three quarters of an hour or so before we needed to pass through those pearly gates and actually head off into the international travel. So... We wasted a bit more time, but we decided we'd better get there because we you know, we'd set this example of being really early for everything. So we thought we'd better um, go through the international immigration um, and, and just sort of casually maybe do a bit of duty free on the other side. And um, so there we were in, the, in these um, in those corridor zigzaggy things leading up to the to the passport handover deal. And my wife went first, um, and she. Uh, the exchange went perfectly. The, the gentleman smiled at her and wished her a happy holiday, and she passed through. And I gave him my um, passport thinking the same thing, you know, it was all going to be dandy. And literally, the minute he opened the passport and scanned it, I could see this red square reflected in his eyes <laughs> from the screen. And his face went from to, you know, you could see, oh, I've got someone. I've got something here. And I was... There was, a, there was a genuine twinkle of excitement, but then he kind of went, put his formal face on and said, Mr. Smith, um, you'll need to come this way, and sort of pointed in this direction. And we, so, um, yeah, as I say, my wife, whose name's Bob, that's another story, but she, she'd passed on through, um, through and was sort of making her way casually away, and this gentleman was past, um, pointing the other, in the other direction, and, and so there was an awkward moment, but I decided I'd better follow it. And, follow it. and I went and sat down on these... He, basically escorted me to these rather uncomfortable sofa chairs outside what looked like a whole lot of interview rooms, very nondescript interview rooms, and told me to sit down. And um, by this stage, my wife had noticed that she needed to come back, and, she, and we, we had one of those little conversations that were kind of, ha, 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 yeah, parking fines and library fines not being paid. It was all, <laughs> didn't make any sense, and just slightly nervous that something wasn't going to go quite perfectly because everything else had been. But we thought it would, you know, it would all pass over fairly quickly, couldn't figure out anything. We sat down there, and we were there for five minutes, and there happened to be a, a lift, pair of lift doors right beside the um, sofa, and then leading through into the um, interview rooms, and these doors open, and two police officers walk through. 
And one of them looks directly at me and gave me that kind of, yeah, you're why I'm here sort of face, and, but didn't stop to talk and walked on through. We kind of took that as a bad sign. <laughs> Moments later, he, um, he came back out and he looked at me and he said, Mr. Smith, um, have you ever reported your passport as being stolen? And I said, no, and then I thought about it, as you do. And they had that one of those moments of the coin drops. <laughs> and, and my wife looked, gave me one of those faces like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just absolute pause moment. And um, I said, well, four years, it was back in the days when you got your passport forever, four years earlier I'd been moving flat when I'd lived in Auckland and um, part of the deal was I was moving stuff in and out of a car and I'd left the bag on the front seat and the bag had all those valuable things in it and the bag had been stolen and and I'd reported it to the police and I thought that was going to be a, you know, that was going to be the end of it. And the police r- rang me and said, well, it's late in the evening, you'll have to come in tomorrow and sign some documentation to say what you've left and uh, lost. And I said, OK, it's fine. And then the next day I went into, um, or sorry, the next day I got a phone call. And um, the phone call before I was heading in, and the phone call was, we've actually discovered a whole lot of things left in a rubbish tin in, in one of the par- local parks. And it, you know, some of the things are obviously yours, and one of them is your passport, and you'll need to come and collect that as well as sign for the rest of the things. So I went in there, and they gave me everything back, including my passport, which was the passport I'd booked, let's say, a five-figure holiday on, you know? And there I was, realising in that moment that not only had they given me my passport back, but someone, very efficiently, had actually phoned or connected with Interpol and cancelled the passport, but they had done nothing to indicate on the passport they'd done that, and they gave it to me, and I just had taken it and booked this massive holiday on it. And at that moment, I realised it, and I told the police officer, and he just looked at me like, well, you're in all sorts of shit, aren't you? (laughs) And I I realised, and everybody in the situation realised, and he left, kind of saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen with you. And we just had one of those horrible conversations, like, trying to sort of sort this out and looked at our watches and we were getting down to like 20 minutes and and, and there's just no answers and the police officer came back and he said, we've actually contacted Ponsonby Police Station and your story checks out. We actually believe you. And it's like, okay, well, you believe me, so what what can we do, what can we do? Uh, Well, there's not really much we can do. Uh, You'll have to stay here. And then he went away again and came back again and he told me this, can you believe this? He said, Qantas is willing to fly you, but they will not accept any of the responsibilities. (laughs) They're willing to fly you internationally, but they're not going to promise anything. Look at our watches. 15 minutes. $15,000 holiday, 15 minutes. You know, this is supposed to set me up to be the most reliable man that this woman had ever (laughs) met. (laughs) A bit of pressure was on, and I was going, um, you know, can you give me an, an anything, a note? No, we can't, we can't do anything for you. Ten minutes. I was the closing, um, the, yeah, closing in, and um, I had that moment, and they said, we will fly you, and guess where I was flying? I was going to South America, but I was going via L.A. <laughs> flying into L.A. on a stolen passport. What are the chances? <laughs> so, the, so at this point in the story, I usually ask if the question, if you were in my situation, what would you do? Would you go or would you stay? If you stay, you miss the holiday because there's no way you're going to get your re- passport re- reinstated and in the time that you need to catch up on all the connecting flights. So I'll leave that question with you. I, I decided to go, unbelievably, and my, my wife supported me in that. So there I was on the plane... 11-hour flight into L.A. And I'm thinking, what the hell? And you know that on the screen you've got that little red dot thing? (laughs) Haunting me, haunting me. Every single little twitch was just a closer and closer sense to do. And um, uh, there was some some reason that I I was giving off this wretched vibe, I guess, and the, the, the hostess came over to me and 
and sort of gave me this sort of toilet bag kind of thing that I might help to freshen up. I don't know why, where that came from. And in it was this horrible, I don't know, gentleman, one of those, it was like a cheap razor blade, but the worst one. It's almost a fold-out one. It's just really horrible. So I'll never forget the image of me in the bathroom of a plane trying to shave my face with soap, you know, that horrible shave, just because I thought maybe my, a shave will be the thing that will save me. <laughs> so I'm flying and we land in LA and it's like, this is the first, the, well, I had travelled a little when I was a lot younger, but this is my first international kind of landing in another place and I was wretched. I was, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not ashamed to say I was... Quite teary at times. Oh, and, and the other thing was the only, because it was, I don't know, well, one of the only movies that was even accepted, even remotely appealing was um, <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. So there I was, <laughs> crying. I think that's probably why the, the um, airline hostess gave me this. I was crying watching Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> And, and it, you know, my wife was, and she, she says this, you know, she was watching it as well and she was having one of those horrible moments of actually liking the film and wanting to laugh and then seeing me. And... <laughs> anyway, so there I was in L.A. And we, you know, we did, what, L.A. is this massive airport, as you probably know, and it, we, did, we had to bus to the, to the terminal and there we were again, sort of in that situation of winding down, getting closer and closer, and I kind of knew that this was going to be ugly. Uh, or maybe praying, and I was rubbing my little emlet. <laughs> and uh, there I was, and, I got, and, and again, I don't know, we just decided, um, Bob went through, and she gave the guy, and he was, welcome to America, you know, have a lovely holiday, you go on, you go on through. And I give, him, I give him mine, I'm just standing there, like, you know, facing doom, basically, and exactly the same thing happens. Nothing changes, except the guy's a little more excited. You know? <laughs> Just a wee bit more excited. He's got someone, and it's like, Mr. Smith, you'll have to come with us. He's, I, you know, I imagine him like, and he turned into a monster and he s sent me in this way. And I, and I was escorted into a room this time, and it was not much, it was basically the same dimensions as this, There's, but there was, it was cubicled off, and there were two windows. And then there was this bench, and it was hard benches all the way around. And there was, I'm not kidding, there was a, the most cliche, badass room of him. Sort of, yeah, imagine American sort of badass gangster movie. Over here was a massive Mexican family that was sort of just screaming and almost stabbing each other and it was <laughs> ugly ass. And then there were two guys that were obviously connected, but they weren't talking to each other. <laughs> you know, there was, they weren't even looking at each other. Something, some serious shit was going down. To, and so we kind of ended up in the middle of this and, and you know, like... <sighs> And by the stage, exhausted and wretched, and we were like, ah, ah, and we're occasionally allowed to go up and talk our pitiful story to these windows, and they were just going like, "Who the hell let you out of the country? <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. We can't do anything for you. You know, you're just stupid. You're going back. You know." So we sat there and went. Hours went by, four, four hours in total, but, you know, hour by hour went by and occasionally they'd ring the consulate and say, you know, there's these pathetic Kiwis here. Can you <laughs> and the consulate's saying, this is the consulate saying, oh, God damn, it's like days, but it's, we're closing down tomorrow for Christmas, you know, like, oh, no, we can't do anything for it. And just tick, tick, tick. And, and um, these, these security, um, like, uh, I don't know, border security characters who had their office would come in and they'd look at us like, what are we going to do with those two, you know? Something's going on there. That's really weird. This is not, you know, they're not looking badass at all. They're looking <laughs> pathetic, melting there in the corner. And actually one of them threw this biscuit at us, which was like, <laughs> just because, you know, we'd, they'd been there for hours and it was like, and not only was it a biscuit, it was like dry and it was a peanut butter biscuit. <laughs> so they were, you can imagine what that's like. Oh, it was just pathetic. And they kind of came over like this. <laughs> Anyway, so the, yeah, so it just went on and on and on, and they said, "Okay, this is the deadline. If after this point, you know, nothing happens, nothing changes, you're on your way back to New Zealand, and you're never going to come back through the states because you will process you as a, a legal immigrant or legal, you know, whatever, whatever the term was." Tick, 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 tick. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. Four hours pass, and then you know, like it's half an hour before the, the actual shutdown time, the deadline, and um, they'd say, "No." Nah, it's over. You're on your way back. 
um, we're going to have to process you now. So they actually escorted me through, and they did this, the finger scans and the retina scan. And, and I, I always imagined myself in one of those badass boiler suits at that stage, you know, like, because I was really process, fully processed. And, like, I'm being escorted out, again, imagining the handcuffs and everything. And those is the cusp of the door, so it's there. And I'm stepping over the door. It's all got, It's all over. And the phone rings, and it's the consulate, and they say, if you get here by 12 o'clock, we'll issue you an emergency passport. And I was like, yeah. And at that point, the really cool thing was all the, all the security guards, all the, the, um, yeah, the, the, the official characters, they, we were all suddenly there, Christmas, like, good miracle, good story. And so they were all kind of like, oh, good on you, great, awesome, awesome. And they were giving out photocopying or printing off you know, directions to the consulate. And, in the, in the best hotel to go and stay at. And, and so, like, 15 hours after this whole situation, I'm standing on the street in L.A. and just with my wife, and we're just looking at each other and going, how the fuck do we pull that off? <laughs> what are the chances of that actually coming off? And I slept like the dead that night, and, um, and I've got images of me running down the street, you know, in this, first of all, in this complete alien environment, but just, like, sprinting to catch a bus to do, to get to this place. And we got there, and we, they were, like, basically sweeping up, you know, and we walk in and they're like, oh, you are the luckiest. Oh, come here. So, yeah, and they go, okay, well, this is going to take a little while to process, so you go down and get a coffee. That's what we do in the States. You go down and get a coffee and we'll call you up when you're ready. Um, Oh, and actually, you're going to need to get a photo taken for the passport. And it's like, oh, hey, hey, wicked, I've got a photo, because they'd taken all the snapshots and they'd actually given me the mug shots. (laughs) Is it like a, is it, is it like a you know, tourist, like, here you go. And they, I can, you can use those. And they were like, oh, we might as well. So they took those. So there I am downstairs having a coffee, and I was thinking, oh, still feeling like the luckiest man, eh? And um, the phone rings, and I, and, I, and I look at the phone. It's from, it's from upstairs. They've got my number. And um, they say, look, Mr. Smith, you're, um, you're, you're going to have to go and get some new photographs taken. You're so sickly pale against the backdrop. <laughs> That, that doesn't even register. We can't, we can't use your photo because you're so pathetic. And, and so we had to go and get another, other snaps taken and we got them and we um, took them back up. And um, yeah, and then we got, so we got the, the uh, passport and um, that was great. And then, and then the, um, the, where do you think, the, the other like curly bit, and I kind of kept this as quiet as I possibly could, the curly bit was um, that we were actually heading to Cuba. So that was a kind of... And we tried to keep that on the low key because that would have been kind of... We thought that might have been the nail in the coffin. But literally, we managed, and we managed to just somehow get all... You know, because we were one day behind at that, from that stage on, so we managed to coordinate. So we caught up with ourselves, and I was literally sitting in Cuba on Christmas Eve smoking a cigar, in Havana, smoking a cigar, thinking I was... Man, I just caned it, nailed it. <laughs> so yeah, that was like this this chance to um, uh, yeah. That every, every every point along the way, I thought it was just going to collapse on me and, it, and just push through. And I guess the moral that I, if there is a moral, <laughs> no. First of all, I'm certainly not the hero of the story, and I kind of have to come to terms with that. My I credit my wife with being the hero of the story. And the other thing is um, that the moral for me of the whole experience was um, the fact that. If, I reckon if I'd been really aggressive at all or lost my, you know, which I was quite possible at times, I think everything would have changed from that moment on. But because I was completely pathetic and wretched <laughs> for the whole time and all my interactions, somehow I weaseled through <laughs> what was the most ridiculous situation. So if there's a moral to my story, it's like, Act wretched and pathetic, and you get away with it. You know, get away with international. I don't know, whatever the term is, um, high crime. (laughs) Give it up for Tama. Our storyteller Peter Harvey is a surfer dude, business analyst who lets us analyse his own poor life choices in this month's issue of the Water Cooler. A travel story that gets everyone squirming a bit. Pete is not one to shy away from too much information. This is Pete's story. 
Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Pete Harvey? Cool. It's the same time as all these guys in about 2007. Um, it was the year of the story. And um, I graduated from Vic Uni uh, with a business degree in accounting and commercial law. And I was about to start a graduate role at a massive sort of corporate tower of Mordor where, you know, this, their souls are just steamed out the top. And um, I was acutely aware that I was about to become one of those sort of corporate swine and probably lose what little soul that I had spewed up down Courtney Place while I was Hurricane Harvey spinning around, <laughs> vomiting off someone's balcony for attention. And I wanted to remain left. I wanted to remain sort of, sort of socialist, I guess, in a way. So I booked this three-week trip to Africa to look at uh, d different types of... D oh, that's shaky. That's embarrassing. I can't change that. Uh, <laughs> I went for the extra weight. No working. Um, so I booked this trip to uh, Africa to look at development work. Not to do any development work, just to look at it. <laughs> and <laughs> Just because I just thought it would be token. And... Um, so I, was, I went to Africa and was like, who are these people? You know, how bad are they battling? Um, are Africans still cool? Um, will this make me care about more than making money and 50-inch screens and a batch in Coromandel and driving a silver Audi? Um, so I landed in Kenya in Nairobi, or Nairobi as they call it there. And I was shown around this place called Kibera, which is a slum. Uh, in, it's about a million people. It's a lot of corrugated iron uh, huts. And I've been shown around, and they offered me a meal at a restaurant. And when I say restaurant, it's more like a plank of wood with more corrugated iron and like a fire. And sort of, a, I'm in a predicament because I don't want to eat the slum food, if I'm honest. And, <laughs> but I'm there, I'm there, let's be honest. Um, we've got pretty good food here. Um, but I'm the only white guy, Mzungu, that everyone's yelling out Mzungu, which I thought was sort of racist, but I didn't want to bring it up, considering all of history. Um, and, and it's still, is it still too soon? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like it could be. Um, and so the only white guy, and I think, will I insult the guy wearing the Masi tribe outfit, which is still in fashion, I'll just let you know, and get beaten out of the slum, or do I accept and eat it and possibly shit my way back to the hotel? Um, it was surprisingly good, so I ate quite a lot. Um, the locals watched as I ate a lot of, the, a lot of meat, which I sort of started to feel bad, you know, eating all the food. And um, then I thought, is this some sort of gag where there's, uh, the Mzungu comes in, they feed him, and then they watch him curl over, crumple up, and just start shitting himself <laughs> in the slum. How many people here have shat themselves as an adult? <laughs> it's dark. It's dark. I know from anecdotes it's quite a lot of people. Um, myself, three times. Uh, two were at sea. One uh, actually down at Felix at 9.30am on a Tuesday. Um, it was unexpected. It was like the lightning bolts just hit. And, uh, but anyway, my bowels were strong and uh, I ate the meal. And everyone was sort of happy about that. Um, so I moved on from looking at uh, city sort of development and I went to go look at rural development uh, in this bus. So I had to catch this bus to Uganda, to Mbali. Again, uh, the only Mzungu. And I'm on this 14-hour bus ride and the roads hadn't been sealed. They hadn't heard of sealing and they had lots of potholes. Oh, they may have heard of sealing, but they're not into it. And, um, more, and they don't, even though there's all these potholes, they still drive at full speed. And so I, I'm approximately 100 kilos, I'm losing weight, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. Uh, and all the chickens and the various grain, a lot of the time were fully airborne, just in the bus for 18 hours. And uh, so just, I'm trying to, just ploughing on, axles, you know, jarring and bouncing, and I honestly was like surprised at the physics of how the bus was holding together. And about eight hours in, this wrinkly, uh, this uh, skinny old African lady takes a seat next to me, and the bus sort of rattles on, and I'm trying to sleep, you know, head bouncing against the window, and I'm getting jarred against the seat. And suddenly, um, I feel this hand on my thigh, this rough, uh, sort of scratchy hand, and my eyes, like, just widen and, and, like, shoot to assess the situation. 
is this something culturally that I'm not aware of? You know, like, <laughs> no one really greeted me on the bus. Maybe I should put my hand on her thigh. You know, is that the thing to do? And I started all these thoughts going through my head. Am I attracted to her? No. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what does she think of my thighs? Because <laughs> some people say I've got chicken legs. Other people say they're all right. You know, I've, I'm sort of... I've sort of got mixed views. And man, man, her hands are calloused and scratchy. And I didn't have answers to all these questions. And, so, and I knew that I was the only Mzungu on the bus, and so I didn't really want to cause a stir, so I just left it. And slowly the hand crept up my leg. Um, and I, again, I didn't know what the protocol was in this sort of situation. And I, over 20 minutes passed. I don't know how long it is, but, you know, it's forever when you're in an awkward situation. I look across. She's asleep. And I looked down at my leg, and my armrest has slowly been raising the pants up on my leg. It's not her. <laughs> Disappointed, I returned to my dreams. <laughs> so I arrive in Uganda, and I check out all this rural development work. And I meet people, I see work, I hear stories. And after a week or ten days, my host left me at the house uh, with a dirt bike and a four-wheel drive and someone to come help me with my washing. Now, I'd sort of had enough of the heart-aching development work, and the four-wheel drive and the bike were meant for development work, but I thought they could use a good blowout, you know? They've done a lot of hard work, it's all serious. And so, by myself, I went up the Ugandan countryside, up dirt roads and random tracks to do burnouts in the, <laughs> in the local four-wheel drive ute. After hours of driving, I'd find my way back home, have lunch, and then take the dirt bike out. Um, and as my time drew to a close, I hopped on a plane, flew back to New Zealand uh, via Bangkok just for one night, and it was really weird, I'll have to say that, uh, as people sort of, you heard about that sort of scene over there. Um, and I watched the... <laughs> I, w- I don't want to tell the story, that's basically what I'm trying to say. It was kind of weird. Um, it, it's loose. And I watched a lot of movies on the plane, hadn't changed my clothes since Africa, nor had I slept much. So it's Christmas time, and I arrive home, everyone wants to hear stories, but I hadn't slept probably in 48 hours, I had four hours sleep. And so, you know, mumbling stuff, and I think, oh, like, yeah, I'm just going to go have a shower. So I hop in the shower, and I get, I don't hop in the shower, I get naked, and I look in the mirror, you know, at my body, as I like to do, and... Um, <laughs> And suddenly I just see this red, this red ring the size of a tennis ball and in the middle is pure white and in the middle of that is a little lump. And suddenly I, I start touching the lump and I'm like fully alert and awake and I suddenly all these memories come back to me. I remember being at dinner and someone telling this yarn about how everyone gathered around this white dude and these nurses were trying to pop this boil and suddenly out popped like a little maggot that had been growing inside the person. And they were squeezing, and, the, and then I hear my host voice telling me, look, the lady will clean everything, but you must iron your own underwear. And then I remember taking the underwear off the line, and they were stiff as cardboard in the 40-degree heat. And I thought, if anything's living in here, well played. I'm going on the, the dirt bike. <laughs> and so I run up the stairs in my towel uh, and screaming for my mum. I'm about 23 at the time. <laughs> and... Um, and I'm like yelling, and, and, I, and I come up because mum's a nurse, you see, so she's seen all sorts of things. And I'm there in the towel, and she's sort of apprehensive because I'm kind of like lowering the towel. <laughs> and, she, and I'm yelling the story, maggots, yeah, cut, we've got to cut it out, cut it out. And she's like, what's, what's going on? I tell the story. And she said, look, we're not cutting anything out. You're going to bed, go to bed. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I went to bed, and I woke up probably like 12 o'clock the next day, and all my family's there, right? And so everyone's heard about this maggot that may be growing in me. <laughs> and so my brother and my sisters, they're like, oh, you know, show us what's going on. So I like go up to them, and I start like lifting my pants, and they're kind of like, oh, like, <laughs> I don't want to see my sibling's special area, and, but I want to see it. And so I show it, and no sympathy, just like, oh, here come the gags. He's eating for two now. Hey, look, here's half maggot, half man. How's little Maggie? How's the pregnancy going? Did you like the mother? Ah, I say as I rub little Maggie. She's growing bigger. The rash is still nice and red. 
So, yeah, you think, oh, sure, surely that's the end of it. That's what I thought too. That night I fall asleep and um, my brother and I are sharing a room. He's in the other bed. That's the kind of family we are. And uh, suddenly I'm awake and there's a robber in the room. And I was like, shit, he's, he's got a bloody knife. And I thought, what do I do? Pretend to sleep. So I'm like pretending to sleep. <laughs> Pretend to sleep. And then I start to think about what are the options here. I was like, I hear rustling. I think, oh, shit, I need to save my brother. I need to, what if I, and I was like, then I started thinking, I was like, what if I save myself? <laughs> my brother's had a good life. He's four years older. He's been in love. He traveled with a band. He's done well. <laughs> Maybe I should save myself. And then I just thought, stuff it, I am. And so I leap out of bed, and as I turn and run head for the door, I look, and on the ground, there's a chair with a hat with a towel on the back of it. <laughs> Maggie's been poisoning me. <laughs> I've got a fever, and I've become delusional. And then I slink back to my bed, like, ashamed that I've chosen myself <laughs> to save. Um... I, I really wanted to get Maggie out of me and into some formaldehyde. And um, turns out one thing that's worse than an infected wound is an open infected wound. So the doctor gives me some cream. I rub it on little Maggie. In time, she stops moving, and my body absorbs her, and we become one. <laughs> and we fast forward. I find myself in a, in, a, in a new suit at the Hilton in Auckland with my new swiney friends, eating a $40 brunch at the viaduct after a night out on the CC and Dries, which is the Yopro's cranberry tattoo upgrade. And, and I hear my swine dog friends complain and say, you don't know what it's like to be pregnant, to have crazy chemicals and hormones running through your body. And I think of Maggie and our time together. And I hear myself saying out loud, well, now, <laughs> maybe I do. <laughs> Our storyteller, Jess Freeman, is passionate about many things, but if you have to narrow it down to her top three, I'd say they're classics, drinking wine, and of course, her partner and family. Jess brings a very unique and insightful perspective to our theme, jet planes. This is Jess's story. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Jess Freeman? Okay, so when Alice first told me what the theme was for this issue, my stomach just dropped because... I actually don't really travel, and I've hardly been anywhere. I had no idea what I was going to say. So the only experiences I've really had with travelling are like a couple of small holidays during high school and a research trip I did at uni and like the one stock standard tourist trip to Australia that everyone's done at some point. Nothing very exciting and nothing very life-changing, and actually the main thing that does come to mind when I think about travelling is the insane amount of debt I am in from that one trip I went on about four years ago. And my stomach drops even more when I think about repaying my grandparents for that. So thanks for the reminder, Alice. But I'm definitely New Zealand bound for a while yet. Now, I'm 26 now. I'm at the age when most of my friends have done one of two things. They've settled down, moved to the suburbs and started working their way up the career ladder. Or more commonly now, they've jumped on a plane and stuck two fingers out the airplane window and got the hell out of Lower Hutt. Yeah. Which ran across. <laughs> And I picture those ones off on the plane, and in my head they all have really stylish, hard luggage cases, like hard luggage cases with wheels, with the really expensive kind that stand up really tall, and they don't make you hunch your back to pull them, and they stand really tall and proud, just like my friends are as they stroll through Heathrow Airport. They do amazing exotic things, wearing sundresses and cool sandals, and their hair is shining and beautiful, and wonderful fine sunlight as they eat tapas for dinner. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting here and looking out my office window in Drizzly Wellington, wandering on a week for dinner. Because chicken was on special again, so we've got chicken again. And we have chicken every week, and I really need to be more adventurous with how I cook chicken. I'm in such a chicken rut, and actually one of my daughter's first words was chicken. <laughs> Travel is like a rite of passage now, it's what you do. You go to school and you get your degree, and then apparently you move home to live with your parents while you save up to go to London for a few years. No particular reason other than to like, experience it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's, it's absolutely fine. And it is really good that people aspire to do something other than stay in their hometown all their lives. Because only losers never go anywhere, right? You need to go out and 
experience the world. You need to take a month to tour around Peru and wear colourful woolen capes and go to India and eat a real curry in a village somewhere and go to Morocco and ride a camel or whatever the hell you want to do, you can do it as long as you're financially healthy. So what about those of us who are left behind? The plebs who haven't been to like travel heaven. Those of us who, for a variety of reasons, travel isn't possible or even, and I know this is the case for some people, even though it is so uncalled to admit it, travel isn't actually what they want. And these days it feels a safer bet to say, I'm not actually a fan of rugby, than it is to say, you know, I'm actually not that keen on travelling right now. <laughs> the latter sends you into a spiral of social rejection where you swear never to admit that ever again, <laughs> and you just make up lies the next time it comes up in conversation, and you start a prepared speech about how you're saving up for a life-changing Kentucky tour, and you can't wait to ride around on an abused animal somewhere in Southeast Asia. <laughs> I've got a pretty good reason for staying put at the moment. I've got two kids, two and a half and ten months. And I love them and I adore them, but cleaning crayon off the walls and wiping baby shit off my carpet is not exactly cocktails in Croatia. So, as a disclaimer before I continue, please, can you all just believe me wholeheartedly when I say I love my kids and I love my family and I love being a mum and, and all of it. But for this story to work and to flow, I need to not apologise for what I'm going to say. This isn't a story about like regret or some kind of take your birth control or you end up like me story. <laughs> now, my kids, they're, they're really young, obviously, and daycare is insanely expensive. Like 5.20 a week, guys. And so are clothes and nappies and food and a mortgage and life insurance and health insurance and car seats and parking tickets and petrol and different types of cleaning products I need for all the different scenarios I come across and all that other mundane stuff that you have to spend money on as an adult. So they're my reasons, kids and money. And even if I had the money, I wouldn't have any leave available from work because my four weeks of annual leave always gets used up as sick leave because daycares are disgusting and my oldest will put anything she finds on the street in her mouth if I'm not quick enough. Like, she loves moss and stones and you can only <laughs> let them build their immunity up to a point. <laughs> so I'm not sad about my reasons. I love my life and I love what I do. I actually really like my job. But it was really hard to accept when my friends started leaving one by one. To go and try these new things and see these new places and cultures and get those awesome stories. And that slow trickle of departures turned into a fully-fledged flood. And I was sad because my friends were leaving and I was sad because I couldn't go with them. Five years ago, my kids were no more than eggs in my ovaries and I hadn't even met their dad yet. And back then I did imagine my future self in like a really flash studio flat in London and I'd be taking weekend trips to Europe and every once in a while experiencing some new continent. And I wanted to do like safaris in Africa and see terracotta statues and hot dogs in America and all that sort of stuff. I didn't really have a plan to pay for any of it. But taking an OE or moving away or even just having regular vacations, travel was such a defining thing that you do. It speaks volumes about a person, what they choose to do, and it's so expected of you now. And social media, for me now, is like a pamphlet in a travel agency, except I can't burn it in a fit of rage without having to file an insurance claim for a new laptop. <laughs> and even my grandparents on all my sides are travelling the world nearly constantly, and my partner, bless him, went to London in his 20s, and he partied really hard for a few years, and he travelled round, and then finally, when they all got evicted from their flat, he decided it was time to go home. And he was spaced out on God knows what on all his flights home and ended up with five stopovers on the way back to New Zealand. He didn't know where he was or what he was doing. His travel has always been such a big part of him and if you know him as a person, you can just see like, oh yeah, that's Marty. You just know it. He wouldn't be the person he is now if he hadn't done coke in London and jumped off statues in Spain and lived in a shitty flat and went out to see beautiful castles and towers on the weekends. I love his stories about his time away. They're so fascinating and they're so funny. My grandparents also have way cooler stories than I do, and they're in their 60s, and they should be up here speaking to you. My best friend as well, she's not that one, the other one. Um, <laughs> she's an actress. <laughs> she's an actress, and she's a champion marcher. So, like a marching girl, and they take amazing trips. She's also loaded, so that really helps, and she's done amazing things in amazing places. And every year she goes to like, multiple destinations. Some of them are Omaru, so take it or leave it. <laughs> Nothing against Omaru, but you know, I'm not jealous when she posts a Facebook status from there. 
But she can chime into so many stories with, oh yeah, I got this leather jacket when I was in Turkey last year, or oh, I liked Edinburgh more the second time I was there. <laughs> we, all, we all know these people, and you may even be one of those people, that's fine. <laughs> think about the people you know, and think about what they've done when they've gone away. Did they just pack up and ship off with no plans? Did they sell all their shit and go to South America? Or perhaps they went to Italy, but like not to that touristy area. They actually lived in the area where all the locals lived and like totally spoke Italian 24-7 and got accepted by the locals as a true Italian soul and like would definitely not eat parmesan unless it's been aged for five years or something. <laughs> or maybe they've just gone to some mediocre town in the UK to work a mediocre job and do mediocre things. But they're not doing that mediocre stuff in New Zealand, so it's okay. Whatever they choose to do, it's such a good reflection of who they are. Or maybe you just know someone who went away on a trip and it was totally life-changing and they came back a completely different person. You know the ones, the ones who are really quiet and sensible at high school and they go live in fucking Thailand or something and rescue elephants from war-torn areas or some real shallow ditzy girl and you didn't really give her a lot of moral credit and she ends up in Costa Rica teaching English to orphans and picking plastic above the beach or something. They all end up being really worldly and like transform themselves somehow. And my one thing I did do is I went to Greece for six weeks on a research trip for university. I studied classics. We went over to study and present research on a range of archaeological sites. And we travelled all around and looked at these amazing ruins and some of them are just dirt and stones and others are just completely breathtaking and you just can't believe they're so old. And that's my thing. I love all that old stuff, if I'm going to be generic about it. We also got completely shit-faced every night for six weeks and we visited most of those ruins with a terrible hangover and the bus was always stopping for puke breaks and I fell down the stairs at a bar and had my arm in a sling half the time. And I'm not sharing that with you to like impress you with my drunk stories because we're old enough that that doesn't impress anyone anymore but just to fully inform you of my travel experience, one thing I did. You ask anyone, what is, what's Jess like? What does she do? How would you sum her up? They'll say, she likes old things and she likes to drink. That's what I did. It's so me. It's so personal. And when you get talking to someone you don't know very well, it's always one of those topics that comes up. Where have you been and what did you do and how many places have you gone? And it's true. Going out and experiencing the world is such an incredible thing. You will gain so much from it. But I can't help but think that we look at saving up, buying a ticket and going to a different place as some kind of life-changing holy grail and we rely so heavily on our travel experience to define ourselves. So how do you define yourself when you've had a couple of small holidays a few years ago and now you're settled down at home? And the next exciting holiday you have will be an overnight stay in the Wairapa in January. <laughs> how do you find or define yourself as an adult? There's this bizarre expectation that you won't really be an adult and you won't really know what you want from life until you've experienced life somewhere else. And I can see how people get stuck in that mentality and I had that belief myself not that long ago. But to be honest, now I find it fucking insulting. Just a few years ago, you would have heard me saying, I don't know why anyone would want to be stuck in this city their whole life. Surprise! <laughs> Past years. <laughs> but it's, it's all all right with me now. And Wellington is amazing. It has good schools. I live right by the beach in a nice suburb. I'm five minutes drive from work. Five minutes walk to bars and restaurants and shops and parks for the kids. There's nothing not to like about it. I mean, you're all here. You must like Wellington too, unless you're too poor to leave. <laughs> but no, apparently, according to past Jess and many actual people presently of that belief, I'm an idiot. I'm happy to settle for mediocrity and a boring suburban life. I mean, I'm an uncultured fucking hick because I haven't been to Italy yet. <laughs> you haven't been? Even though you studied all that Roman stuff? You really have to see Pompeii to appreciate it. <laughs> I yeah, well, my A grades in Roman art and archaeology beg to differ. Well, thanks for your concern about my lack of culture. <laughs> I was watching House Husbands the other night because apparently it's mandatory when you're a parent that the TV is permanently on Channel 1 even though you have Sky. And there's this scenario on the show where a guy has three kids from a previous relationship and he proposes to his girlfriend who lives with him and raises his kids with him. In shock horror... The whole goddamn story was about everyone telling her that she needs to go out and go to South America for a bit of travel, you know, to make sure it's really what she wants. Hold off on getting married until after you travel because, wait for it, she's 26 and turning into a tired housewife. <laughs> How terrible. I mean, 
don't settle down with these kids and that man you love just yet because you haven't experienced the world. How do you even know if you love him or those kids? Seriously. I mean, obviously you guys, like how can you decide if you love and want to marry someone until you've been bike riding on the new and improved tourist paths of the death road in Bolivia while eating a traditional vegan quinoa burrito. You need to experience some of that real shit before you could ever make a decision about your current life that is literally right there in front of you. No one has the ability to make a life decision without having seen a giraffe in a different country to your own. Give me a break! This, the worst thing was, this is, this is how it went. She came back and this is actually the scene. Hey Justin, I missed you. So glad you bought me that ticket, Argentina. Because, yeah, like, I'm just actually not ready for this. We can still be mates, though, right? She actually said that. <laughs> Listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go travelling before you get married. Because, obviously, it works out really well. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Travel whenever or wherever you want. But really, are people really believing this mentality? It was not the trip to Argentina that made her realise she did not want to get married. That is just a very expensive and time-consuming exercise for something far more simple. The reason she didn't want to get married is because she already knew she didn't want to get married before she left. She just needed a change. Some time away, some time by herself, time to reflect in order to come to that realisation. For example, if she knew that she really wanted to marry this guy, she would have probably said something more like, let's go on this trip together because I like hanging out with you so much. Or, please don't pay for me to go to Argentina we need that money for the wedding. <laughs> it's fine to take time and reflect before you make life decisions, but did you really need to go to Argentina to do that? Was it the local Argentinian cuisine that changed your mind? Or was it the scenery? I mean, it's bullshit. <laughs> this episode of House Husbands really struck a chord with me, and that is definitely not something 2009 Jess thought that 2015 Jess was ever going to say, but it really did, and you can probably tell by the fact that I'm writing this story for a start. And also, this is, this is quite a personal thing for me. It's a personal battle I've been fighting for the last couple of years. Who am I if I haven't travelled? Does that mean I'm actually not fully developing as a citizen of the world? Who am I without these experiences my peers are having? What do people think of me? What will I be in the future if I don't go and travel at this crucial intersection of my life? <laughs> it's a fucking mid-midlife crisis. <laughs> My partner Marty, again, who is a goddamn saint, by the way, despite what I said about his time in London, has mentioned a few times that you know, most of his circle of friends were in London at one time or another, except for a few. And interesting things came out of that, like the left-behind friends meet the new friends when they come back and they got married. And I always fixated on that part, just the few friends who stayed in New Zealand and carried on with their lives and then all of their old friends came back a few years later having had this huge experience. And what did they do? They just hung out in Wellington and some of them had kids and had a job. And how weird would that be to just be one of the couple of people left behind where your whole other circle of friends moves away? Oh, wait, that sounds familiar. That's me. It's not that weird. You still have a life. You still have goals. You have motivations. You have daily routines. Exactly the same as the people over there, wherever there is, if someone goes on a huge exotic holiday every year and does all of these super cool things with their super cool luggage cases and their super big wallet, they are still just a person who sits on the toilet every day and goes for a dump. And sometimes they argue with their girlfriend or get a parking ticket and sometimes they really just are pretty much the same as the people who haven't. Those of us who haven't travelled very much really put those who have on a pedestal because we're really insanely jealous about it, for a start. And we also really have nightmares about a stampless passport when we're 45. And I was Skyping a friend of mine who has left New Zealand for what was originally a year and is now indefinitely. Well, it's gone. She made a good point to me that it is not all roses and they don't post or tweet about the nights and eating pasta alone because they don't have many new friends yet and how being in a new city can be incredibly daunting and really overwhelming. And I started to say that to her, well, you know, at least you're doing it. At least you've got the chance to do these things and have that experience. But I stopped, held myself back and thought, oh my God, you know what this means? Both of us, both of our actions and experiences, they will all be both negative and positive and all still totally valid. She's not a better person than me because she's travelled and I'm not a loser because I haven't. 
Past Jess was so wrong in that creeping worm of a thought that I'm not going to be a real adult until I've ticked off at least 10 things from my world map wish list is so stupid. We all just do stuff that makes us happy. I mean, look at Alice. Part of the 10% same height and a 2016 Billy T nominee. <laughs> look at me. I'm 26 and I have an awesome family and an awesome job. And whatever experiences we have will all just shape our lives and the people we are. And the fact that I'm not currently living in another country and have not yet even taken many holidays is neither here nor there. And I'm not missing a part of me just because I'm missing out a few stamps in my passport. I would definitely still like those experiences, hopefully before I'm 30, but I'm not counting on it. It will be different than I had imagined, and it will be different than what most of my friends are doing or have done. And that applies to everyone, travelling or not travelling. The experiences you have in life are what shape you to become who you are. The way you imagine your future shaping out is always going to change. Just so long as you are actually bothering to imagine what your future looks like at all, then you're off to a really good start. Who am I if I haven't travelled? I'm, I'm Jess. And who am I if I have travelled? I'm still Jess. Whether I'm Jess standing on the Atacama Desert in northern Chile, or whether I'm Jess standing in the Isles of Countdown, holding my kid on a leash so she doesn't run off and hide in the paper towels again, <laughs> and I'm trying to choose the cheapest but also low-calorie and low-sodium sweet chilli sauce in a humble attempt to try and spice up the chicken I'm making. <coughs> Yet again, I'm experiencing things and I'm becoming the person that I have become and then the person I will go on to be, regardless of whether I took a plane to get there or not. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Water Cooler. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to hear previous episodes, you can visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This episode is produced by Alice Bryan, that's me, and also hosted by stand-up comedian Alice Bryan, who was also me. So make sure you get to the live show and come and see the magic happen. This show would not be possible without our founder and director, Sarah Finnegan-Walsh. Special thanks to Radio New Zealand and The Wireless for their continued support. This podcast was brought to you by New Zealand On Air. Join us next month for more stories from The Water Cooler.